Oh, it's that time of the year where we uh, begin thinking about graduation. And you heard Eric mention a little bit about the uh, graduate recognition service on June 3rd, Sunday night. Uh, we dedicate the entire evening program to that. It's an ice cream fellowship. We are non-denominational when it comes to ice cream, so please bring your favorite flavor and uh, wow us with your your, um, your 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 special tastes related to that. But uh, I don't I don't know if they do this anymore. Um, Sam and Ryan, you guys will have to help me. I think Donovan's up there. Donovan's still there. There you are, Donovan. See that bow tie. Um, you guys can remind me whether you guys do this. But back in my day. Way long, long, long ago, we used to do a thing called senior superlatives, and uh, you would you would recognize your classmates with uh, things that you thought was were was going to typify who they were in their adult life, based upon who they were as a student. So, um, someone gets designated as the class clown and is most likely to be a comedian when they grow up. That's the senior superlative. Someone who's very responsible as a young man maybe gets the superlative of most likely to be president of their own company. Uh, you have all kinds of things like that. You know, who is the senior who, um, as a representative from, from the, representative from the class, is the best dressed? Who has the, the best hair? Who is um, most likely to grow up and be an evil scientist? You know, uh, all things like that. Who has the best voice? Who's likely to end up on, you know, America's Got Talent? Or in the case of Ryan and Sam, who has the best bromance? Um, what's going on there? Um, there's all kinds of superlatives that you... I'm so sorry. I did not even ask permission for that. Feel the burn. Um, all kinds of superlatives that we use for... For folks, you know, what, what well, they're most likely to do what? So here's the question. If you could go back to Jesus' graduating class, what superlative would he get when he graduated high school? Now, lo and behold, they didn't have high school back then. Some of you are going to want to hop in a time machine right away. You can go, oh, man, no school. What, what superlative would Jesus have gotten? Now, and don't give me the cheesy Sunday school answer, most likely to change the world. Uh, I know that. Well, what is it about him? Most compassionate? Best teacher? How about most controversial? It's probably not the first superlative that pops into your mind when you think about Jesus, right? Listen, and this is, this is tough, okay? Because I have to tell you something that you know, but you don't know. You know, but you don't know. Jesus is extraordinarily controversial. Like, he's not for you because most of you, just looking around, with, with a few exceptions, most of you are insiders. You're in the bubble. Jesus ain't controversial. We love sweet baby Jesus, you know? We, we're not threatened by Jesus, and yet the, the world thinks Jesus is a tremendously controversial person. We see that perhaps most clearly in Jesus' last words to the Jewish nation. Jesus says, he came predominantly to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and then his own received him not. Jesus is not universally loved. Not today, certainly not in his time. And kind of like what happens today. Like, go to Fox News, check out the Drudge Report, go wherever it is that you get your news, your news whatever is your news source, and somebody's going to drop a journalistic bomb about something. There's some bad news that is going to be 
sensationalized. And almost like a sensationalistic journalist, by the time we get to Matthew 23, the Jewish religious leaders hate Jesus so much, and they are such hypocrites that Jesus finally says, all right, I'm writing an op-ed piece, and I'm outing you. I'm writing a devastating expose about your hypocrisy. Jesus' last words to the Jewish nation. Now here, here, and I have to give this. See, I have the chance to warm up in the first service and get it right in the second service. And so upon reflection, I have to say something to you that if you're not wearing your steel-toed boots today, I, I beg your forgiveness already. Uh, multiple times in this passage, Jesus is going to refer to the, the specific group of the Pharisees and the scribes uh, with woes. Woe, you hypocrites. And I think the temptation for you will be to hear this as a history lesson of Jesus 2,000 plus years ago addressing the religious establishment. If Jesus was here today, who would the religious establishment be? Be us. And what happens to be the predominant way that Christians are referred to by people from the world? Hypocrites. So don't listen today like Jesus preaching to them. Get them, Jesus. Sick them, Jesus. Get them good, Jesus. You're in this passage. I'm in this passage. We all deal, we are hypocrites, guilty as charged. We're just trying to get over it and trying to do the right thing. So two main points, there's a couple sub points, but if you're following along in your outline or you're following along on, on our version app, <clears throat> you, can, you can see exactly where we're going in Matthew 23. We'll begin in verses 1 through 3, looking at kind of how he sets this up, where Jesus warns about the character of these hypocrites' lives. He says, watch out. These are not men of character. Scripture says this, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, so there's a, there's a group within a group, to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes or lawyers and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, meaning the, the teacher's seat, they, not, not an actual chair or throne, but they, they occupy a position where they're a teacher. So they sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, not the works that they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Whole introduction to this. Jesus is kind of in a little bit of a quandary because these, these false teachers, what is their textbook? Their textbook is the Old Testament scriptures. Is Jesus for the Old Testament scriptures? He is. The law of Moses is a good thing. So listen to them carefully. Do what they say, don't do what they do. They teach better than they live. He's telling us to be like the Bereans in Acts who would listen to the apostles and evaluate what the apostles would say against the already clearly revealed Word of God to see, do we reject this or do we submit to it? They have to listen to the law of Moses, but Jesus has to decry the example of the leaders. Here's the challenge, friends. Like, we are such terrible judges of character. You, you realize that? Now, some of you may be a little bit higher in your discernment, okay? I don't know if any of you feel like you have the spiritual gift of discernment. Um, some of you just get it quick. There's an intuitive kind of process here. But if somebody dresses up and goes to church, what's your automatic assumption about that person? 
they're okay. And the problem is religion becomes a way to get dressed up and hide all kinds of spiritual deadness. Like, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Like, that's, that's, there's, there's an amen there somewhere. Going to church does not make you a Christian. Having a personal relationship, having repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins makes you a Christian. All, all the rest, it's important. There are rules that we follow, not because we're trying to keep rules, but because we're trying to build and deepen our relationship with God. That's why we gather to hear God's word proclaimed and listen to songs that praise him. And so Jesus has to take the most highly respected religious leaders in his day and and decry their, their terrible personal example. They're publicly respected, but they have all kinds of serious deficiencies when it comes to their character. He gives four in verses 4 through 7, he begins with saying they're not sympathetic. They're not sympathetic. They have no sympathy. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. The Jewish people, in contrast to the Jewish leaders, are genuinely trying to find God. And instead of making it easier, these religious leaders and the teachers of Israel are putting burdens on people. They're not sympathetic with these people scrounging by, trying to find, what is wrong with this world and how do I get into a vital relationship with God? They're not sympathetic to people's search for God. They make it harder. They tie up heavy loads for others, but on top of them not being sympathetic, they have no integrity. Zero integrity. Look how verse 4 goes on. It says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They're not willing to do this. When it comes to obeying all of the many rules that they have tied up upon people, not sympathetic, they have no integrity. That's why he says, Don't expect them to do what they teach. They teach really good. They live really miserably. He goes on to say not only are they not sympathetic, not only do they have no integrity, but they are selfishly motivated. Their whole motivation is their self. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says this. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Okay, when he says all, that's inclusive. He says they do everything that they do to be seen by others. Friend, I hope your your practice of religion, whatever that looks like, 9 to 5, Monday through Saturday, let's make it 7 days a week, 24-7. I hope you don't do it to be seen by others. Jesus says that's not... That's not good. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad, and they make their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the very best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They are more concerned about their own reputation than they have ever been about the glory of God. Now, I can see how that happens with the scribes and the Pharisees. That doesn't happen in the church today, does it? I mean, people aren't selfish today, are they? I mean, we're not, we're not selfish, are we? We don't come to church 
to make connections with people and forget that worship is primarily about God? Right? I mean, well, you're not here to evaluate what songs Eric picked today or to pick apart my sermon, are you? You're here to sing God's praises. You're here to listen for where God's word is hidden in the, the, the finiteness of my speech. They don't give a rip about the glory of God. All they're concerned about is their reputation. He goes on to say that they absolutely lack humility. Everything about them is about themselves. And he goes on and he talks about uh, three ways in which they demonstrate this lack of humility. He talks about their dress. <coughs> now, phylacteries were a little, a little leather pouch that you would wear on your forehead that would have uh, portions of the Old Testament Torah. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the Bible says when you, when you walk through, the, any door you walk through, you should consecrate whatever is going to happen out there to God. So think about this. This would be a really good practice. Um, I have tried to do this, and it's, it, it's a lot of work. But every time I pass a threshold, I try to pray. Because God bless you. When I'm, uh, <laughs> when, when I'm walking out the door, what am I doing? I might be going home for the day. You know, there's a whole new realm of ministry at home. I might be going to the hospital. I might be going to meet with somebody that needs to have the gospel shared with them. Every time I pass a threshold, I'm doing something. Even if I'm just going to the, the printer, what am I printing out? I'm printing up something for church. Every time I pass a threshold, I want to pray and just say, God, I don't know what's for me in the next room. Help me be ready for it. Help me be your man when I, when I get to the refrigerator, <laughs> when, I get, when I get to the hospital, when I get to this guy that's been visiting the church. He's got questions about what all of this is about. And so they would, they would take this phylactery, this little leather pouch, and it was supposed to be discreet. If you've ever seen a Catholic on Ash Wednesday, they get up the little, they don't, they don't take it and go, it's discreet. Just a little bit of mark. Um, if, you've, if you've seen an Indian, someone who's from the country of India, they have the little, the little tikka. It's not, a, it's not a big old thing, um, like a miner's helmet. It's, it's just a little bitty dot. It's discreet to show their religious consecration. And what, the, what the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees did is they thought, well, you know what? The bigger our phylacteries are, the more spiritual it means we are. Like we're, sh- we're showing off. Who are they showing off for? Other people. So they made their phylacteries. Instead of being li- a little bitty pouch, they made it bigger. They made the large print edition, you know? Um, they had these prayer tassels, and the tassels had some kind of uh, significance for reminding themselves to pray and what they're praying for, how long their prayer list is. So they're like, we got a great idea. Let's make our prayer tassels. I want my prayer tassels to be longer than Alan's because I'm obviously more spiritual if my tassels are longer tassels. I don't like them on curtains, and I certainly don't like them on Pharisees. You know, what in the world is this? So the way that they would dress belied their lack of humility. The way that they sought for privileges. Um, you know, uh, well, good evening, you know, Mr. Davis. So glad you're joining us at our restaurant. I'll take the finest table that you have. Oh, certainly, you're, you know, you're the head Pharisee guy. You know, certainly we got to treat you well. They loved privileges. They loved honors. They loved titles. Hey, don't, don't you forget, it's not Mr., it's right, reverend, honorable doctor, somebody. Get it right next time, loser. They love these to, to dress in ways that made them distinct. They love these privileges and honors. They love these titles that um, distinguish them from the hoi polloi, the other people. They were self-focused. <laughs> now, here's the challenge, okay? Anybody here like pride in others? Anybody like pride in others? 
Anybody feel like you're sensitive? If somebody else is really pompous, like your pompous meter is like really high. Like you, you sniff it out really quick. Like somebody's pompous, you're like, ooh, ooh going to slide away from him. You get, do you get angry when other people are proud? So what happens when you get angry at someone else's pride? Isn't that a form of pride yourself? Like here's the deal. You don't understand how insidious pride is. If it was a disease, everybody's infected. You got it. Every single one of you. The question is whether you realize it or not. And so, like, it is the thing that infects us. And fortunately for us, in uh, verses 8 through 10, Jesus gives us an antidote to this pride and this self-focus that these Pharisees and scribes have. Look what the Scripture says. <laughs> in contrast to everything we just talked about, but you, so he's addressing the crowds, Maybe now he turns to his disciples, but you, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbled himself will be exalted. There's there's two cocktails in this antidote that Jesus gives. The first one is this, having a humble attitude. He just talked about how the Pharisees love these titles and these places of honor. And he says, don't call any man, what's he say? Don't call any man rabbi. Don't call any man father. Don't call any man teacher. Because you're all brothers. You have one teacher. You have one father. You have one instructor. It's Christ. What he's saying is not that it's wrong to refer to someone by their their title. You know, officer? Thank you, officer, for the ticket. Can I have another? Um, It's not wrong to refer to someone by a title. Uh, what, he's, what he's saying is that you don't want to usurp God's rightful role as sovereign over everything. And there becomes a way in which you want to puff yourself up, that you like these kinds of things. And he's saying, no, 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 have a humble attitude. If you don't have a title, it doesn't mean you're not leading. It just means that you're humble. You know, you walk into some people's offices and they want to make it really clear every certificate that they've gotten since first grade, every degree that they've completed. And I'm like, so are you that bad at what you do that you have to prove that you've gotten certification in it? And listen, that may just be me. As soon as I get the diploma, I'm ready to burn it. Because if I I can't prove in what I do day to day, some piece of paper hanging on a wall ain't going to impress anybody. And listen, I'm for education. I went to school for a long time. God knows how long. <clears throat> but there's something about getting an education and, and being full of yourself. So don't be full of yourself. Make your education a tool that God uses, not something to, to pompously puff yourself up. Don't be self-inflated. Humble attitude, humble service. And he says something really crazy here. He says, seek greater service, not greater self-centeredness. Find ways to serve. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Find a way self-consciously, to put yourself under someone. You're not being walked on. You're serving them. And this is a really counterintuitive thing to, to say, but it's true. Anything in life that humbles you is good for you. Can you believe that? Anything that humbles you is good for you. Do you want to be humiliated? That's what it means to be humbled. No. 
I don't be I don't want to be humbled. <laughs> but it's good for you because it reinforces a genuine humble attitude. <clears throat> Newsflash, okay? It's not just teenagers who think that the universe revolves around them. Quite honestly, I'm not surprised when a teenager thinks the world revolves around them. They haven't lived enough life and had enough experience maybe to get that bubble popped, you know? What's sad is when people who are middle-aged or people who are senior adults still think that the world revolves around them. It is not just a young people disease. It's everywhere. The world does not revolve around you. The world revolves around God. God's called you, if you are one of his followers, to serve him. And the Lord who was humble to the point of death expects his followers to be humble as well. Jesus does us a great favor by telling us, watch out for these people's character. If there's one word that can summarize the kind of character that we're supposed to have, it's humility. Second point, Jesus has just gotten done warning about their character. Now Jesus witnesses against the content of the hypocrite's teaching. Now, um, I think it's Dave Ramsey that says even a, even a blind squirrel can find a nut, a nut every once in a while, you know? You run around long enough, you know, you know even a blind dog's going to find a bone, you know? <clears throat> even though they're false teachers, they may, they may teach some good stuff on occasion. But because their character is so deficient, you'd better be on the watch for what their teaching includes. And through the rest of this, this is a structural note. It's not going to be readily observant in the, the sermon. But in the rest of the, this chapter, Jesus pronounces seven woes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Not like that. Not like slow down. Woe is in disaster. Woe is in like, oh my goodness, that is so terrible. I, I'm, I'm pronouncing judgment. Woe upon you. Uh, he pronounces seven woes in denunciating the false teaching of the teachers. I've grouped them into four categories, but there's, there's seven that uh, kind of make up what Jesus is talking about here. And the very first thing that he warns against related to their teaching is that he recognizes that there's a reason people teach. If you're a teacher, you teach because you want to help people, right? I mean, you want people to learn penmanship. You want people to learn math facts. You want people to learn history. You want people to learn uh, good grammar so they can speak good. Some of y'all get that later. Um, <clears throat> speak well. <laughs> you, you proud, Chloe? I got it right. Um, I had to practice that all week. Um, you want them to learn how to think and, and how to be a useful citizen. And so Jesus denunciates these teachers by saying that their teaching, far from helping, actually hinders and even hurts. Their teaching, far from helping, actually hinders and hurts. Verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. This is, this is terrible. And, 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 and there's an intentional analogy that Jesus is setting. He says people are knocking, trying to find the door to heaven. And that the Pharisees through their teaching are slamming the door in their face. So think about Jehovah's Witnesses or Amway, or those poor college students that are selling those ma educational materials that, you know, they're locked up for the summer. You're running around selling all this stuff. <clears throat> what do you do when a door-to-door -door salesman comes to you? Most of you 
you lie. You pretend like you're not home. You, like, you turn all the lights off, hide under the bed, you know, grab the dog, muzzle the dog. <laughs> don't, don't let them know we're home. You hide. Some of you just go, we're not interested. Kaboom. <laughs> Take us off your mailing list. That's what they're doing. They are literally slamming the door of, uh, in the face of these searchers. More than that, it's a different analogy because it sounds like they're on the inside. Jesus says, I'm using this analogy of slamming the door, but they're not on the inside. They are not, they are not entering themselves, and they're not allowing people who want to enter to go in. They're like bouncers. Like they're going to find a way to keep you out. They have no interest in going in, and they have no interest in allowing you to go in as well. Verse 15 goes on. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That went over real well. He says, listen, you're not... (laughs) You're not just hindering them. You're actually hastening their journey to hell. You're not helping them to heaven. You're sending them in the opposite direction, saying that they're teaching far from helping, hinders and hurts. Secondly, how to win friends and influence people. Jesus says their entire religious practice is not praiseworthy but pointless. This is everything you do. All the cherished things that you do to express religious devotion, you get it wrong. <laughs> You're like, wow. All right, he had to be the Son of God. <laughs> like He's calling people out. He is walking around with boots on and everybody's wearing flip-flops. He is just smashing toes. And he, he talks about two things. In his third and his fourth woe, he talks about the whole idea of oath-giving and then he talks about gi- giving, tithing. Verse 16, he starts off talking about oath-giving. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, doesn't matter, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's now bound to his promise. He goes on in verses 17 through 22 to just talk about the ludicrousness of they have developed a whole way of making promises that allowed for loopholes. Okay, So when you're a kid, you know what you did? You made a promise to someone, hey, I'm going to give you my Cal Ripken Jr. baseball card. I had my fingers crossed. That's what they're doing. They're saying, you know, you can, you can swear by the church building. And you know what? If you make a promise, if you swear by the church building, it's okay. Church building doesn't matter. But if you swear by the offering, oh, now you're bound. Doesn't take a rocket science to see. What did they think was really important? The church building where we worship or the money in the plate? Listen, hucksters aren't new. They've been around forever. People in ministry who are concerned about money, that didn't happen in the 80s with Jim Baker. It happened thousands of years ago. They've been around forever. There's a sucker born every minute. That's why they keep popping up. Motivated by not the spiritual, not by the teaching or the life transformation that happens in the building, motivated by the Benjamins, the money. That's what they think is real. That, that's what binds you. Make whatever promises you make. Eh, there's loopholes. They are more concerned about the physical, the tangible things you can touch, far more than they are by the spiritual. Verse 23 and 24, he goes on with the fourth one. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Here's what they do. I don't cook much. I grill. I'll tell you what I don't do. I don't grill with mint or dill or cumin. I don't even know what cumin is. Little seeds? No? Okay. It's a spice. Like salt and pepper. Taco seasoning. All right, that works. So mint and dill are leaves. So they, they, they get all their leaves and they chop it up to give God his part. Oh, they were fastidious with, you know what? There's like three leaves on this. So we need to make sure God gets at least one of them. Bless our heart. So obedient. Like, we give God our vegetables. How about you? And yet, when it comes to issues like keeping your word, or being faithful to God, or being concerned about justice, law and order, eh, God, you need to be happy with the the weeds we gave you. You need to be happy with your salad. We're going to keep the steak for ourselves. Tedious in their observance, but they completely miss the meaning. They miss the meaning about making oaths. The Bible says, the Bible's really clear about about your word. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. You know, know, this is a complete aside. But in the South, we're so nice. The problem is we lie. We lie, like right through our teeth, we lie. We sit there and praise God, you know, from whom all blessings flow. Hey, will you think about um, serving in the nursery? Madeline, now. Let me, lettest me thou prayest about it. Just say no. Like, don't blame it on God. Well, you know, I... I fasted for seven days this week, and I went to God in earnest prayer. And he said, the nursery ministry is not for me. I just don't feel called. Oh, you know, you need someone to uh, sing on the praise team? Oh, yeah, that's, that's my thing. Uh, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. These people are really concerned about hanging their pictures nice and straight and never worrying about the foundation of the house. You can get your pictures as straight as an arrow. If your foundation's messed up, you're going to lose your pictures, you're going to lose your house, you're going to lose it all. It's kind of like it's kind of like the guy, and Eric, I'm sorry I'm picking on you this morning. It's kind of like the guy that wants to come in and say, you know what, there are many, too many oo-oo-oo's in that last song we just sang. I don't like oo-oo's. You know, way too many oo-oo-oo's. And the joker hadn't opened his Bible in like 15 years. Let me establish a rule for you guys. If you're not living the way God wants you to live, we're not a democracy. We don't want your opinion. Did I say that, like, too strongly? If you're living for Jesus, you got a right to vote. If you're not, keep your opinions to yourself or go complain with the guys in the balcony, the Muppets that just want to complain about everything. Now, I'm not saying that because there's complainers here. We don't have complainers. But we, we, we have done the same thing where we have allowed people with religi- religiosity to be respected when there's nothing respectable about their discipleship. 
If you're not following God, you're not a disciple. Probably shouldn't be a member of the church. But you know what? Your name got on 30 years ago. We're going to keep you. Because you, you look good on Sunday morning. But it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than that. Don't just hang your picture straight. Make sure your foundation is good. Don't, I love this analogy. He says, they're straining the gnat out of their oil, but they're swallowing a camel. Like, pick, try to picture that for a second. Not possible. And that hyperbole is the exact point. They're missing out on the point of all of it, but they're doing all these little things that are important. <clears throat> uh, woes number five and six are related to this concept. Their false holiness valued external appearances more than internal reality. Their false holiness valued external appearances more than internal reality. Verse 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. I love these analogies. This plate in this cup. And I thought about doing this, and... um, who, who could I pick on to be my volunteer here this morning? Um, hmm, 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 hmm. Let's see here. Donovan, I've come to you a bunch, so I'm not going to wear you out here. <clears throat> What's Princess Anna doing over there? Oh, I caught you, didn't I? What if I brought, you know, if anybody's been to Nukes, they, they give you these plastic tumblers, black plastic tumblers. It's awesome. Because you know, like in this verse, Jesus is calling out every kid that's ever done the dishes. You know, oh, the outside's clean. Look at the mess on the inside of this. If you clean and wash the inside of the cup, the outside's going to be okay. So what if I had one of these big black plastic tumblers, and I had um, filled it with dirt and potting soil and manure? I mean, think about all the nasty, dirty leftover food and, and had left it in the sun so it's baked on. I mean, like, it ain't coming off. Like, burn the cup. It, it's, it's, it's there. But the outside looks nice and clean. And I get this most wonderfully refreshing Kool-Aid, fruit punch, something just thirst quenching. And I go, hey, hey, Anna, you want to take a drink? <laughs> Sounds like some kind of dirty, weird old man trick, you know? <laughs> you want to you wanna drink, drink of this Kool-Aid? <laughs> um, he'd be like, no, that's disgusting. And yet he says that <laughs> when, it, when it comes to people's holiness... They don't really care on whether what's inside truly reflects God's nature as long as they look okay on the outside. That doesn't happen at church, does it? Clean the cup on the inside, and you've pretty much washed it on the outside in the process. He goes on in verses 27 and 28, the sixth woe. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 27. 27 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It talks about tombs that are built, tombs that are above ground. If you've ever been to New Orleans, you know that the water table is so high that when they bury you, you have to be buried above ground. So they have these tombs, these mausoleums. Because every time it floods, if you're buried in the ground, the coffins float up. It's not a pretty picture. And so you drive through New Orleans, uh, kind of around there, and these cemeteries are they're beautiful. 
You've got these ornate little sheds, buildings that are built, and they're pretty, but they're not full of pretty stuff. And so in Jesus' day, kind of like Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn, they would whitewash the tombs. They'd have a white paint that would reflect the sun. And it's amazing because like you have, a, you have a tomb and it's kind of dirty and dingy. It's just, it's been around for a while. And you go, oh my goodness, I got to clean this up. And you think you're going to have to paint it. And all you do is you pressure wash it. And all of a sudden it looks like it's brand new again. So they, they pressure wash the tombs and then they, they paint it up so it's nice and bright. And you're like, wow, look at this. This is, it's really clean. This is beautiful. I wonder what's in this building. And you step in and you open the door and what hits your nostrils? I don't know if this is a word, but putrescence, stenchiness, decaying corpses, rotted bones, worms, eaten bodies, dust returning back to dust. Oh, so pretty on the outside, but inside it's, it's wretched. It's filled, with, it's filled with filth. It's really easy in our religiosity to look beautiful on the outside. For what's on the inside to be rotten to the core. His seventh and final woe. In verses 29 through 36, Jesus says that the religious leaders, their false pride is exposed by predicting what they will do to the prophets. What they will do to the prophets. <clears throat> Follow along with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. They're saying, hey, we're not just better than everyone who lives. We're better than our forefathers. They killed the prophets. If we would have been alive, the prophets would have lived and Isaiah would have written another book. You know, um, you know other things would have happened. We wouldn't have killed them. Verse 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of whom you will kill, future, not talking about the past, talking about the future, your forefathers killed, you will kill, and you will crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that On you may come all, all of the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barakai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come come to pass upon this generation. Oh, we wouldn't have done what they did. We're going to decorate the, the, we're going to build monuments to the prophets. And he says, no, you'll do worse. You'll actually murder the Messiah. You'll kill Christ. And a most fearful sentence is pronounced. He said that this generation, the generation that Jesus is addressing with his lips, will be guilty of all of the righteous blood shed through the entire Old Testament. From Abel, who is the first murderer in the Bible, to Zechariah, who is the last prophet that is martyred. All of it will be guilt, will be heaped upon this generation because all of them ultimately pointed to Christ. And by murdering the Messiah, they become guilty of all of the blood shed in the Old Testament. So Jesus' final, final, last official words to his own people, the Jews, are ones of judgment. They're ones of judgment. Oh, isn't it easy? Isn't it easy to speak, speak judgment? You know, listen, it could just be an argument about college football. 
Oh, you don't agree with me? You're an idiot. You, know, you like that team? You're an idiot. I don't know how anybody could be as foolish as you to like whoever. <clears throat> but we don't speak words of judgment the way Jesus does because Jesus speaks words of judgment with tears of longing. Judgment with tears. Listen to what he says in verses 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you were not willing. Oh, see how your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus here demonstrates this longing for not just rebels, but rebellious murderers. Oh, Jerusalem, who has murdered the prophets and will stone the apostles. Jesus is saying, I wanted you. Nobody else wants you. I want you, even rebellious murderers, come to me. So if Jesus wants rebellious murderers to come to him, what prevents you? You're not a rebellious murderer as far as you know. What prevents you? And the challenge in our day and age is it's the exact same thing that presented them. Jesus says, I am willing to gather you, but you are unwilling. Unwilling. The truth is, even for us who walk with Jesus, we confess our need for Him, and then we try to live as independently of Him, of him as possible. It's not right. The old song, we need Him every hour. It doesn't even go deep enough. We need Him every minute, every second, every moment. And so the Jews in their day were so proud. We're better than our dads. We're better than other people. We don't need anything. We're better. We're okay. The question for you this morning is if you don't recognize your sin and your need for Christ, He's worthless to you. Do you, unlike the Jews, recognize your need for Him? I'll tell you something that you may not recognize. You need Him. You most definitely need Him. The question is whether you recognize your need or not. If you're a follower of Jesus, when's the last time that you seriously evaluated how you're following I'm not just talking about, do you have a perfect attendance pin? Do you dress nice on Sunday? And do you smile at people when you're leaving? That's not it. When's the last time you seriously evaluated how you're living? He said to the the Pharisees that their teaching was so bad that not only did it not help, it hindered and it hurt. Is it possible that you are standing in the way of someone coming to Jesus? Could it be that if God removed you out, that that person would come to Christ? You are the obstacle. Let me, let me just say this gently. If you're silent about your testimony, you might be. If you are not sharing, you may be an obstacle. God's like, I'm ready to save them. I'm just waiting for you to say something. Because God works through means. And the means might be you. And the end might be their salvation through your testimony. But if you don't speak like the Pharisees, you may be slamming the door of heaven in people's faces. <clears throat> do you miss the point of obedience? Is obedience about the praise of men or is it about the praise of God? 
Are you only into easy obedience? Hey, I'll give God the veggies. I'm not doing the hard stuff. Let's get the pictures hung straight. I don't care about the foundation. not worried about it. If we ask the question, how, and this is a weird question, how holy is your holiness? I'm not asking whether other people clap at what you do. I'm asking whether, according to the Scripture's definition, your code of holiness has any holiness to it. The truth is, most of us, our holiness is H-O-L-E-Y, holiness. We need to inspire and ask God to encourage us to have H-O-L-Y, holiness. We've sung about how good God is. He's good. Are we living like He deserves our best obedience? Are we living like God is as great as we proclaim Him to be? Pray with me, please. Father, we pray that you convict us where we need to be convicted. You have uttered this powerful sermon against hypocrisy. And we ask that you expose the hypocrisy in our own hearts. Father, we all believe better than we live. Help us today to not walk out of here the same person. By your word, through your spirit, transform us in Jesus' name. Amen.